Welcome to Non-Binding Guidance, a podcast series from Ropes and Gray focused on current trends in FDA regulatory law, as well as other important developments affecting the life sciences industry. I'm Greg Levine, head of the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group in Ropes and Gray's Washington, D.C. office. I'm joined today by my partner, Josh Oyster, from the Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Group based in Washington, D.C., and Beth Weinman, also based in Washington, D.C., counsel in our group and a former enforcement litigator from FDA's Office of the Chief Counsel. Today's episode will be the first in our 2024 U.S. Life Sciences Regulatory Outlook podcast series. We will be discussing some key issues to watch related to FDA enforcement and litigation in 2024. These include FDA's planned finalization of a rule to regulate laboratory-developed tests and the likely legal challenges that will follow in the courts. Litigation at the Supreme Court related to FDA's approval of mifepristone for medication abortion and the potential impact this decision could have on judicial deference to FDA decision-making more generally. Ongoing litigation in Texas related to FDA's statements during the pandemic discouraging the use of ivermectin in humans that could have broader impacts on FDA's authority to issue public health warnings, and organizational changes in FDA's Office of Regulatory Affairs and ongoing policy developments that are likely to have a significant impact on FDA inspections and the enforcement actions that can result from such inspections. Let's start with the LDT topic. And Josh, why don't you first give us a quick refresher on what it is that FDA has proposed with respect to LDTs. Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. This is not the first time we've gotten together to talk about LDTs. Uh, as described in a prior client alert on our website and in a podcast we did at the end of October, uh, FDA's proposed rule on LDTs would amend the definition of the term in vitro diagnostic products and FDA regulations to clarify that IVDs are medical devices under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, including when the manufacturer of the IVD is a laboratory. As part of the proposed rule, FDA also plans to phase out the enforcement discretion that historically has applied to most LDTs. FDA's proposed rule generated substantial comments from industry stakeholders, the healthcare community, patients. FDA received more than 6,700 comments by the December 4th, 2023 comment deadline. Notably, FDA had denied extension requests um, from industry stakeholders that sought more time in which to comment. You know, Greg, now that now that the comments have been submitted, what do you foresee uh, happening now from FDA's perspective? Certainly, FDA would like to finalize the rule as soon as possible, and we can see that from FDA's denial of the request to extend the comment period which you just mentioned, and which is fairly unusual. One consideration that may have motivated FDA in denying that extension request is concerns about the upcoming political elections and the possibility that there could be a change in the political party that controls the U.S. Senate. And FDA might be concerned that if there's one party Republican rule in Congress, Congress might prevent the LDT rule from taking effect under the Congressional Review Act. The politics on this issue don't necessarily break down on clear partisan lines, but I think it's fair to say that there's reason for FDA to be concerned that Republican control of both houses of Congress is more likely to result in Congress uh, taking that kind of action with respect to the LDT rule, which 
this kind of rule would represent an extension of FDA regulatory authority into an area that historically it has not regulated. Similarly, FDA might be concerned that a new presidential administration might withdraw the proposed rule if it's not yet in effect or not yet finalized. Of course, a new administration could always withdraw even a final rule, but that's a more burdensome action to take and sustain legally than withdrawing a proposed rule. So although FDA may not admit to such political considerations, they, they may create powerful incentives for the agency to, to try to finalize that rule before, uh, before this election season. And in the fall unified agenda where federal agencies publish their plans for the upcoming year, FDA has on their schedule that they are targeting an April 2024 um, date for publishing the final rule. Of course, as a practical matter, that seems like a daunting challenge given the number of uh, comments they receive, as you just mentioned, Josh. FDA has to address those comments and has to do so in a way that will position it best to withstand judicial review if the rule is challenged in court, which, which does seem likely. Another question is whether Congress will step in now to legislate. One could look at this as FDA sort of challenging Congress to take action here. There's been the Valid Act, which is legislation that has been developed and considered over a period of years now, that would create a new uh, legal regime for regulating laboratory-developed tests. FDA's proposed rule represents what FDA thinks it can do under its current legal authority. Many think that uh, what's really necessary here is to have clear congressional legislation at the federal level to establish uh, the, the legal system for regulating laboratory-developed tests. But again, you know, is that something that can happen this year? Can it happen in an election year? That may be a tough hill to climb. And then if that doesn't happen and we have new elections in November, then we'll have to see where the politics align after that, after that point. Lastly, an interesting question to consider is, what FDA will do as an enforcement matter with respect to particular LDTs that it finds concerning. If we assume that this is going to take some time, either because the LDT rule is not finalized by FDA or it's under legal challenge and not yet in effect, or even if you just look at the structure of the LDT rule itself, which takes a number of years to phase in various requirements, FDA has said that it has serious public health concerns about certain types of LDTs. So is it going to wait for that entire process to play out before it's going to take action with respect to some LDTs um, that it finds particularly concerning. So um, all that are things that we'll have to see how they develop during the coming year and then even, even after the, this year. Beth, one of the points I had mentioned was the likelihood of litigation. When do you think we could expect to see that kind of litigation go to courts? Yeah, that, that's a good question. The minute FDA proceeds with enforcement action, you know, a case will be ripe, And the authority for that enforcement could be immediately challenged and there's no real issue with timing. I think the real question is, if the rule is finalized, but there's not any enforcement action on the table, can an action proceed at that point? And, um, you know, the, the key legal question that would be addressed in a pre-enforcement challenge would be um, ripeness under the standard from the 1967 Abbott v. Gardner case, which includes a hardship element. Um, so, I mean, those seeking pre-enforcement review would need to show a direct and immediate impact from FDA action, um, such as that the regulation requires immediate and significant changes in, in conduct 
um, with a threat of you know serious penalties attached to noncompliance. So if we have a situation where there are you know arguments that that labs can make that they are impacted upon finalization or shortly thereafter, you know it's possible that that their enforcement will be heard. Um, I think we're going to see a challenge, you know, very quickly after the rule is finalized. The question is whether or not that challenge will be heard. Thanks, Beth. Let's turn next to the litigation related to mifepristone, a drug that's used for medication abortion. The Supreme Court is about to address this issue in the next few months. Josh, can you update us on what has happened there and what it means for FDA potentially? Absolutely. Thanks, Greg. So the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, a physician organization in conjunction with several other physician associations, sought a preliminary injunction ordering the suspension of certain FDA approvals of the drug mifepristone, which is intended for use in medication abortion. As, as you said, mifepristone was originally approved more than two decades ago in 2000. And since then, there have been several supplemental approvals uh, affecting the product labeling and the conditions for distributing the drug. Following a preliminary injunction ruling in favor of AHM in the Northern District of Texas that would have stayed FDA's approval of mifepristone, including the original 2000 approval, the Supreme Court stepped in essentially on an emergency basis and stayed the stay order in April 2023. And we, we've talked about those early developments in the case and a couple of client alerts on our website that you can look to those for uh, more details. Following the April 2023 uh, action by the Supreme Court, that kicked the case back to the Fifth Circuit, where a decision on the merits of the district court's stay was issued in August 2023. The Fifth Circuit affirmed in part and vacated in part, and what they essentially decided was that the plaintiffs did have standing to challenge the FDA's changes to the mifepristone labeling and REMS that occurred in 2016 and in 2021. Those particular challenges were likely to succeed on the merits in that, according to the Fifth Circuit, FDA's actions were likely arbitrary and capricious under the Administrative Procedure Act. The Fifth Circuit also held that the plaintiff's challenge to the original approval of mifepristone in 2000 was time-barred. The court also found that the plaintiffs lacked standing to challenge the 2019 approval of a generic version of mifepristone. The overall upshot of the Fifth Circuit decision is that mifepristone for medication abortion, both branded and generic, would remain approved, but only under the approval conditions that existed before the 2016 changes to the labeling and the REMS. But because of the earlier Supreme Court stay in April, the Fifth Circuit decision in August didn't have any immediate effect. It was still stayed pending further Supreme Court review. Then FDA and Danko, the manufacturer of branded mifepristone, a party in the litigation, petitioned for cert before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court granted cert uh, just a few weeks ago on December 13th. Uh, no date for oral argument has yet been set, but it should occur in the next few months uh, with a decision by the Supreme Court at the end of its current term in June. Uh, notably, the Supreme Court denied a cross petition for cert by AHM that had sought to reopen the consideration of the challenge to the original 2000 approval of mifepristone. So that, that particular issue, technically not, not before the Supreme Court at this time. What is the potential impact of this case uh, beyond mifepristone? Does it have potential impacts beyond this one drug and um, how has the pharmaceutical industry or other life sciences industry segment responded to this case? Industry has been watching this case incredibly closely uh, because of the potential far-reaching implications 
of any decision that might uphold uh, what either the district court or Fifth Circuit has done. The holdings of the district court in the Fifth Circuit, if accepted by the Supreme Court, could have significant implications for FDA's authority over drugs and other medical products. That could mean potentially reduced judicial deference to FDA's expert determinations of safety and effectiveness in, in reviewing new medical products. It could mean less latitude for FDA to draw inferences from clinical trial data. And it could also potentially mean limits to FDA's ability to exercise enforcement discretion. Because of these concerns, we've seen extensive amicus briefing by the pharmaceutical industry and other interested stakeholders at all levels of the litigation, including the Supreme Court. Uh, you know, just to you know, cite a couple of examples, um, in the amicus brief from Pharma, the Pharmaceutical Trade Association, uh, supporting FDA and Danko's petition for cert, Pharma said the Fifth Circuit's decision threatens to chill pharmaceutical innovation by disrupting industry's investment-backed expectations. The Fifth Circuit's flawed decision rests on a basic misunderstanding of the FDCA. For many courts to second-guess, FDA's judgments could destabilize the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry. Separately, a group of uh, food and drug law scholars weighed in that said, if allowed to stand, the Fifth Circuit's decision will erode the drug regulatory system established by Congress and the FDCA and implemented by FDA through regulations, guidance, and well-established practice. It's clear that the stakes are very high in this case, and industry will be watching very, very closely. Switching gears a bit, I want to turn now to another case where a court, and specifically the Fifth Circuit again, has called into question FDA's authority in certain respects, and that's the Aptor versus HHS case, or as listeners are probably more familiar with it, the case involving FDA's social media posts telling the public that you're not a horse. Uh, Beth, what, what happened in that case, and, and how is it that FDA's communications were called into question? Yeah, this is a very interesting case um, brought by three practicing physicians who treated COVID patients with ivermectin. And they were very unhappy with this social media campaign um, that you just alluded to. So I'll talk about that for a second. In, in December 2021, FDA published a, an informal consumer update noting that FDA had received multiple reports of patients who had required medical attention after self-medicating with a veterinary version of ivermectin. And the update directed consumers to talk to healthcare providers about available COVID-19s and, and other treatment options, not the horse version of ivermectin. Um, but at the same time, FDA posted an FAQ and a series of social media posts like the one that you referenced and the full, just to say, because it's so entertaining, the full uh, quote was, um, you know, it had photos of horses and said, you are not a horse, you are not a cow, stop it, y'all. And hold your horses, y'all. Ivermectin may be trending, but it still isn't authorized or approved to treat COVID-19. So these posts caught a lot of attention. Uh, the plaintiffs in this case prescribed the human version of ivermectin to patients in the course of their medical practice. And they alleged that FDA's campaign interfered with their um, individual abilities to exercise professional medical judgment um, and harmed their reputations. And in some instances led to adverse professional consequences. So they sued. They argued that FDA had um, exceeded its authority, you know, that the posts were ultra virus um, under the Federal Food, Drug and Cosmetic Act and unlawful under the APA. And they asked um, the district court uh, that the post be set aside and then FDA be barred from making such um, statements and directives in the future. The district court dismissed the case on sovereign immunity grounds. The Fifth Circuit reversed in September, 2023. 
and held that, in fact, the plaintiffs could use the EPA as a vehicle to assert their non-statutory ultra-virus claims against FDA, and that those claims were not subject to sovereign immunity at all. So while the case is procedurally a little bit complicated and the APA discussion is a little confusing, the Fifth Circuit reasoned essentially that the post in question contained imperative rather than declaratory language, and that the government had not, in the court below, identified any colorable authority allowing it to make medical recommendations, at least without providing notice and the opportunity to comment first. Thanks for that overview, Beth. What What's happening in the case now following the Fifth Circuit's decision in August? The case was remanded back to the district court for a decision on the merits, um, and we haven't seen anything reported yet about uh, what's happened to that case on remand. What might the broader impact of the Fifth Circuit's decision be in other situations where FDA wants to issue public health warnings or engage in social media communications with consumers about medical products? Well, I mean, look, because of the procedural posture of this case, it's not totally clear how binding the Fifth Circuit opinion is with respect to FDA's lack of authority um, to, to make declarative statements. I mean, because the Fifth Circuit essentially said that in, in the court below, the government had presented its authority. So in the absence of evidence authority, the Fifth Circuit held that FDA didn't have the authority. Now, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the court below and if and if there is more authority presented. But I mean, the implications are that other plaintiffs will pick up on this, that they'll be copycat like cases. I mean, anybody who doesn't like a statement that FDA makes can make an argument, you know, that FDA was being prescriptive and based on the Fifth Circuit's opinion here that it doesn't have the authority to do so. But, you know, it's not clear what's going to happen in this particular case going forward. You know, I don't think it ever occurred to FDA that it didn't have the authority to make the statements that it makes. FDA has and does um, uh, make declarative statements and provide recommendations. So um, I guess it remains to be seen whether FDA is going to change its behavior to mitigate, you know, its risk of having, you know, binding authority that it can't make such such statements. I mean, provocative campaigns like this are useful for getting a message across. But the backlash that led to this case may be maybe more than FDA bargained for. Thanks, Beth. We've been talking a lot about the Fifth Circuit today, so I'll add a brief mention of one more Fifth Circuit case where FDA suffered defeat. We don't have time to discuss it in detail, but but on January 3rd, a Fifth Circuit on Bonk decision stayed FDA's denial of marketing applications for certain tobacco products finding that the agency's decisions were arbitrary and capricious. The cases, wages and white line investments doing business as Triton Distribution versus FDA. The Fifth Circuit's opinion there attacks the agency for issuing voluminous guidance and detailed instructions for filing these applications, then changing course midstream on the information and data that must be included, and then summarily rejecting the plaintiff's applications despite the plaintiff's purported compliance with the agency's instructions. The Fifth Circuit, notes that the agency's conduct was, quote, the regulatory equivalent of Romeo sending Mercutio on a wild goose chase, and then admitting there never was a goose while denying he even suggested the chase. Uh, So an interesting and colorful case there. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Certainly some judge's clerk or the judge was having fun with that quote, and then they they actually cited to the Romeo Juliet play in in the decision, which I thought was really, really funny. Let's turn now to the final topic for today's podcast. FDA has been making a number of statements lately 
about reorganizing the Office of Regulatory Affairs, which may have implications for both the current inspectorate and potentially for FDA enforcement in the future. Beth, can you tell us about what we might expect to see in this area in 2024? Yeah, it's a little hard to say because I don't think any of us know exactly what this reorganization is going to look like. And we we don't know if it's going to be approved. So in in FDA's most recent update, um, in December, it announced that it submitted its proposed reorganization package to HHS for review. We're waiting to hear if there's going to be approval and then, you know, whether or not the transition plan will actually go off as expected. I think there is um, certainly a possibility that there could be hiccups that will that will get in the way of agency inspections based on FDA statements. I mean, it, it seems like ORA is um, sort of losing their policymaking authority. I think enforcement in the past has always been sort of a two-headed monster. Um, you know, with ORA setting some of its um, own enforcement priorities and sending out inspectors and, and taking regulatory action, and then also regulatory action coming from the product centers. And it sounds like one of the implications of this reorganization will be streamlining um, priority setting to the product centers. And, you know, the inspector will sort of become the, the army that goes out and implements more streamlined priorities. I, I think the agencies hope is that streamlining the organizations in this way will make for more efficient and and potentially more enforcement action, you know, that is um, geared at the priorities that that come from the top. Um, But again, we don't know how that'll be implemented and um, it it might in the short term lead to sort of reduced inspection if there are disruptions. Okay, so early days on that one, we'll have to see what that looks like and then see how that um, develops in the future. What about on the topic of inspections? What should we be expecting in the coming year? We know FDA is under pressure to bring its total inspection numbers up to pre-pandemic levels. Um, And it's got to do that in a context where it's still replenishing its investigator ranks. There were a lot of retirements and departures during the pandemic um, and doing this in the context of structural organizational change. So it's a tall order. Um, recent data suggests that the agency is is not quite where it wants to be. It's not quite at pre-pandemic levels, though it's doing better on the domestic front than the foreign inspection front. Um, I will note that uh, FDA recently issued two draft guidances in the fall um, suggesting and, and discussing um, use of remote inspectional tools, suggesting those will be more common in the future, at least in helping um, direct FDA on where it's most important to send boots on the ground. The first draft guidance was issued in September, and it addressed at a very high level the different types of remote tools that FDA is thinking about using, um, such as remote document assessments, remote interactive evaluations, or RIEs, and then reliance on foreign regulatory agency inspection reports. This guidance talks about use of these tools in assessment of good manufacturing practice compliance at drug and biologics facilities. The second draft guidance was issued shortly thereafter in October, and it addresses in significantly more detail um, what is involved in a remote evaluation and suggests that tool will be used in all types of inspections, not just GMP pre-approval inspections. According to the draft guidance, an RIE is um, a tool that involves remote visual observations of a product, facility, manufacturing operations, and records, whether through live streaming of video or screen sharing, also involves virtual meetings. The agency seems to be intent on relying more on obtaining information from firms remotely. 
And no doubt uh, the agency hopes to use these tools to close the gap in, in foreign inspections where travel is more difficult. Despite the highly detailed um, description of RIEs, FDA has actually only conducted 10 of these for GMP assessment purposes uh, between April 2021 and September, September, October 2023, while 100 RIEs for, for bioresearch monitoring purposes in the same time um, you know, have been conducted. We released uh, an alert on these guidances shortly after they came out. Um, and so if, if anybody is looking for more information about them, certainly can check out that alert. Just to say another word on the foreign inspection front, I mean, we're seeing in the news that FDA is really under pressure from Congress regarding its uh, foreign drug inspection program. I don't know, Greg, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, well, this is an issue that has been in Congress's crosshairs for a number of years where there's a feeling that domestic firms are regulated or inspected more frequently and more intensively than FDA, and there's sort of this unfair uh, playing field. And the most recent development, the House Committee on Energy and Commerce sent a letter to FDA in July of last year requesting information about FDA's foreign inspection programs and expressing concerns about the low number of foreign inspections, as well as an FDA decision to allow the temporary import of otherwise unapproved drugs from India and China to alleviate shortages. The letter noted that the largest number of warning letters go to firms in those countries, in India and China, and also expressed concerns about pre-announced foreign inspections. So that's been another big issue where, you know, the concern about the uneven playing field is that the foreign firms historically would get prior notice from FDA that the FDA is coming in because they have to arrange visas and they have to do all the logistics for the inspections. Whereas if you're a domestic company, you know, the FDA can just show up for an a surprise inspection. So there had been some work on FDA's part to try to do some unannounced inspections overseas. But in any event, this letter, the congressional letter, expressed concerns about um, this FDA pre-announcing foreign inspections and suggested that FDA had terminated a program in which they were doing some unannounced foreign inspections, but they didn't realize that in 2022, FDA actually had renewed its pilot program for unauthorized drug inspections for India and China. As of December 14th, FDA still had not responded, and the committee then gave FDA until January 5th to respond to the request. So we'll, we'll see what happens. If no response is received, the House committee says that they will issue a subpoena. So we're going to keep monitoring this, this situation. One other quick development to mention before we go relates to the Medical Device Quality Management System Regulation, or QMSR. Two years ago, in February 2022, FDA published a long-awaited proposed rule that would harmonize U.S. quality system requirements for medical devices with the international ISO 1345 standard. FDA called this proposed rule the new QMSR. On January 5th, FDA's final QMSR rule cleared review by the White House Office of Management and Budget and is expected to be re released any day, but as of this recording has not yet been released. We previously issued an alert summarizing the proposed rule when it was issued in 2022. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the final rule lays out the implementation timeline for the harmonized QMSR, as well as how FDA, if at all, addresses the impact of the new QMSR on its inspection approach for medical device manufacturers. Stay tuned there. This concludes the first episode in the Outlook 2024 series from our Life Sciences Regulatory and Compliance Practice Group 
here at Ropes and Gray. Stay tuned for the next episode in our Outlook series in the coming days. For more information about our practice and other topics of interest to life sciences companies, please visit our FDA regulatory and life sciences practice pages at www.ropesgray.com. You can also listen to non-binding guidance and other Ropes Talk podcasts in our podcast newsroom on our website, or you can subscribe to this series wherever you listen to podcasts, including on Apple and Spotify. Thank you again for listening.